Hello, this is Melissa Lau, Associate Pastor of Congregational Care and Missions at Wesley Memorial United Methodist Church. Thank you for subscribing to our podcast. Our sermon series is based on the book of Matthew. Please jump in and learn along with us as we go on this exciting journey. Thanks again for listening. God bless. Yeah. Morning, everybody. It is so good to see you, and I I join our praise team in the expression of gratitude for us to be able to be in the same place to worship together, and of course, we are so appreciative that we get to come into the homes of those folks who are watching via all the different internet platforms. Yesterday, I was catching a few glimpses of football games. Now, I am not a rabid football fan. I come closer to be a rabid basketball fan. I am a Duke University graduate. I know that's going to set some people's teeth on edge. But yesterday, you guys did pretty good if you're a Carolina fan, right? Yeah, there's amen in the house to that. Mm -hmm. Well, one of the things that you notice on the football field is not just what occurs out there on the field as these mighty folks do battle with each other. Notice what goes on on the sideline. Because those coaches will sometimes get in the face of one of their players or more than one of their players, and it looks like they are just giving them down the country. Don't you wish you could hear what they're saying sometimes? I remember the story of uh, two young men who were in high school, and they had made, just barely, (laughs) the football team for the high school, and they were just always in the coach's eye. He was always doing something to correct or redirect them. It seemed like they got no peace. And one day after an especially discouraging practice, they had gone in with the rest of the team. They had showered. They had gotten dressed. But they were just sitting on the bench next to each other, so dejected, after everybody left. And one of the guys turns and says, Man, the coach always yells at us. Don't you wish he'd quit yelling at us? And the other guy started to agree, and then he stopped And he said, no, because if he quits yelling at us, it means he's given up on us. You know, there's some truth to that. It's true in football. What football coach have you ever imagined that would pregame or midgame, halftime, say to his team, now I want you to go back out there or I want you to go out there and you give me 50% of what you got. Or even in the marketplace. Any supervisor that says to the employee, now you've got eight hours today and I want you to give me at least four good hours at your capacity. Is that going to happen? That's not going to happen. Or imagine, imagine the young man standing at the altar with his beloved and they're exchanging their vows and he turns to her and he says, I want you to know I am going to be fully devoted to you. I'm going to be faithful to you almost all the time. How do you think that's going to play? Not very well. Now, in the Old Testament, we have folks called the prophets. And the prophets were like fiery coaches filled with passion, calling the people of God to a redirect calling them to full devotion. They would get in the face of the people. They wanted people to get back on the right track. And you'd think, since these were representing the Holy One, they were representing a God-given message, they would have this great reward as prophets. What was the prophet's reward? 
Some of them got stoned. Some of them were run out of town. Some of them were put in cisterns. Others were put in stocks. Man, it wasn't easy being a prophet, calling people to full devotion. Now, at the risk of being called a prophet by some of you and getting a prophet's reward, today I want to I example through the scripture what God's anticipation is for you and I to be fully devoted followers of Christ. That is folks that have said we trust Jesus not only with our eternity as our Savior, but we trust him as the Lord of our life day in and day out. We're going to put all of our resources, our time, our skills, our relationships, our lives, our finances under his lordship. And the way I want us to get at that is to look at one of the ancient kings of Israel by the name of Amaziah. His story is told very briefly in 2 Chronicles chapter 25, verses 1 and 2. Now you remember, in the Old Testament, God is kind of ambivalent about the people wanting to have a king. God wanted the people, the covenant people, to look to the Holy One as their king, as the Lord of life, as their temporal leader, not just as their spiritual leader. But the people persisted, and God, God made allowances for kings to come to lead Israel in a temporal fashion. Now, it seems, as you read that record, there were more bad kings than good kings, and Amaziah was one of them. Listen to what the scripture says. Amaziah was 25 years old when he began to reign. And he reigned 29 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Jehoadan of Jerusalem. Now, here's the kicker. He did what was right in the sight of the Lord, yet not with a true heart. Another translation says, but not with his whole heart. He did what was expected. He did what was his duty. He checked the boxes. He followed the rules. But that's it. Perhaps he did the minimum just to stay out of trouble. And he missed so very much. He ruled for so many years. Think of all that he might have accomplished because he was king. But he didn't serve. He wasn't fully devoted with his whole heart. So today, I want to contrast Amaziah with another king who by no means was perfect. He was a human being as you and I are human beings. He sinned as you and I sinned. He messed up several times as a dad. He messed up as a husband. He messed up as a leader. He messed up as a follower of the Holy One. But his saving grace was every time that he messed up, and he did, he fessed up, he repented, and he sought to get back in right relationship. And this king is named King David. Now, I'm not the first to note some of the qualities of King David's life that speak of full devotion. Others have, I've read authors through the years, and I'm drawing on some of their insights in addition to my own. David was this very fallible person, but he had three things that I think are so important for us to be fully devoted, wholehearted followers of Jesus. The first is 
that he initiates servanthood. He doesn't hesitate. He initiates. Over in 1 Samuel 17, we have that very familiar story. David, as a half-grown man, goes to visit his brothers who are in King Saul's army. King Saul's army is in an in a great conflict with the Philistines. King Saul's army is over on this ridge. King, um, uh, the Philistines are over here on this ridge. In the middle is a valley. Now the Philistines have a great champion. He is a giant. His name is, class? Goliath. And Goliath comes out every day and he taunts, he taunts Saul's army. Send your best warrior, send your champion. No need for our armies to fight. There's too much loss of life. That's just a waste of time and resources. Send your best guy out and fight me. Whoever wins, the other side surrenders. Nobody in Saul's army wants to go out there. David is present one day when Goliath comes out and issues the challenge. And David's looking around. Boy, he's just waiting for maybe five or six people to say, I'll go, I'll go, I'll go. Nobody goes. Everybody's got their head hanging down, just hang dog kind of expression. What in the world is the matter with you? And their response might well have been, Goliath is too big to hit. And David says, uh-uh, he's too big to miss. And David says, I'll go. He doesn't hesitate. He initiates. And he goes out there in his heart, in his mind. He's remembering the faithfulness of God. When he came up against to protect his sheep, he came up against the bear, the lion, and how God delivered him. God was faithful. And there's that giant just waiting. Going to dispatch that half man of a boy. And David comes out, maybe humming a little tune. He's got a sling, and he's twirling that sling and lets that stone fly. It goes up, pops the giant right in the temple. He staggers and he falls because David didn't hesitate. He initiates servanthood. When he's king, many years later, he does a risky thing. You see, there's a fellow in his kingdom by the name of Mephibosheth. This is in 2 Samuel chapter 19, verse 24. Mephibosheth is lame in both feet. Mephibosheth is the grandson of King Saul. You remember that King Saul, when he was king, first liked David. But then he began to see David as a threat. And even tried to kill David. So when David becomes king because Saul has died... Kings of that day and age would always find the members of the former king's family and dispatch them, get rid of them, lest somebody powerful comes along and champions them to challenge the new king. Here's Mephibosheth. But David doesn't hesitate. He initiates servanthood. He welcomes Mephibosheth to the king's table. Now, Mephibosheth, being lame, has no way to repay the king. He's not going to be a mighty warrior. He's not going to be a skilled politician. He's not going to be a diplomat. He's just going to be a king, a drain on the king's resources. But David initiates servanthood. 
and puts all of his resources available to this man who cannot provide for himself. David also didn't hesitate. He initiated worship. He wrote worship songs. We call them the Psalms. Listen to this, Psalm 86, 12. I give you thanks, Lord, with my whole heart. Psalm 119, verse 10 and 12. My whole heart, I have sought you. Don't let me stray from your commandments. I treasure your word in my heart. David is wholehearted. He's free-hearted about worship. Now, there's one occasion. This is over in 2 Samuel chapter 6. There's one occasion when David is bringing the Ark of the Covenant. The Ark of the Covenant is the most holy symbol of the relationship of the Holy One with the covenant people. David is bringing the Ark of the Covenant into Jerusalem. All of the musical instruments are playing. And David is just overcome with joy in worship. So much so that he begins to dance. He dances with abandon, and other people see that, and they join him in the dancing in worship. It's like liturgical dance on steroids. But not everybody's pleased about that. When David gets home, his wife, Michael, who is the daughter of the former King Saul, says rather sarcastically, how wonderfully the king has distinguished himself today, exposing himself to the eyes of the servants like some burlesque street dancer. You know, sometimes, just because we're human beings, if we happen to be married, we sometimes get a little snippy with each other. We get a little snippy. And David's response is a little snippy. In God's presence, I will dance all I want. He chose me over your father. Ooh, is that snippy? That's snippy. Mm. He chose me over your father and the rest of our family and made me a prince over God's people. Oh, yes, I'll dance to God's glory more recklessly than this. I will gladly look like a fool. You know what David's saying? He's saying, I don't worship. I don't worship to please you. I worship for an audience of one. There is only one that is worthy of my full devotion. There is only one that is worthy of my opening my heart and my soul. There is only one who is worthy of my allegiance. And it is the Holy One. David doesn't hesitate. He initiates worship. Now, friends, I want to note something else. As I said, Micah, Micah was the daughter of the former King Saul. And I just don't believe that Michael ever saw her father, King Saul, worship with full devotion, worship with his whole heart, dance before the Holy One. What she saw was a half-hearted devotion that eventually got King Saul into deep trouble. I think it's a cautionary tale, a cautionary tale to those of us who are parents, those of us who are grandparents, those of us who have influence over children. It is about the importance of worship and allowing those young ones, our, our, our children, our youth, to see our heart of devotion for worship. Now, during this time of COVID, we've certainly been under restrictions, 
But we've been so creative, so creative using all of the internet media platforms. And you can gather for these times when you can't be physically present. You can gather if you have family in the home, if you have children, youth in the home. You can gather to demonstrate the importance of worship. Somebody said, well, you know, I can't remember any sermons I ever heard. And I said, well, I can't remember many of the meals my mother ever cooked for me. But I believe that I was nourished and provided the resources, the nutrients that I needed for my growth. So it is in worship. Sometimes we, we, can, get, we can get a little messed up about that. I, I take several internet feeds and uh, internet news feeds and I enjoy just reading the different perspectives. And just recently there was on that feed about a guy who went down in his basement and he found Twinkies that he had bought several years ago. And he ate one. And it wasn't a good experience. It made me wonder, I wonder if he's one of those people who several years ago when the hostess company was going out of business and said they were going to quit making Twinkies. I wonder if he was one of those people who just lost it. There was one woman who went to several supermarkets, bought every Twinkie she could find, filled up the back seat of her car because she said, I don't want my kids growing up without Twinkies. We can get devoted to kind of the strangest things. David was clear. David was clear. There is only one who is worthy. Last Sunday afternoon, it was my wonderful privilege to be a part of a confirmation experience when we had these young women, women in our confirmation class to line up at the altar, making public what they had already made as a covenant in their hearts to accept Jesus as the Lord and the leader of their life and to take their place among us as full members of this congregation and as fully devoted followers of Jesus. As I was a part of that service, I remembered a good friend of mine. Uh, he was a part of one of my churches. We did good stuff together. We went on uh, mission trips together. Oh, we had such fun. We'd go to the golf course together and play terrible golf together. Just terrible. We had a wonderful relationship. But over time, over time, I noticed that that he and his family became more sporadic, more sporadic in their attention to being at worship. And when I would talk to him about it, he said, well, you know, we, we, got, we got four daughters and we just had a baby boy and, and we, life is just busy. It's just so busy. And I understand that life is busy. But that trend continued and finally they just weren't there at all until confirmation time, his oldest girl, and she took all of the confirmation classes, and I was just rejoicing. I was so glad to be with them again in worship, to be enjoying their company, his friendship. And when she was confirmed the next week, they were gone. Well, maybe they took a vacation. The next week, they were gone. Maybe they're visiting family. The next week, they were gone. And the week stretched into months. Maybe I didn't handle this very well. You'll have to be the judge of that. Maybe it wasn't very pastoral, but I called him up. I called him up and I said, listen, if there's ever a time when your daughter and the rest of your children need to see fully devoted parents, 
If there's ever a time when your daughter and the rest of your children need to see fully devoted people in the church to gather around them, it's now. Your daughter, between now, the age 12, and the time she graduates college, is going to be faced with times where everything she thinks, the way she thinks, what she thinks, and all of the choices that she has made thus far are going to be challenged. And she needs to be surrounded by godly parents who are themselves surrounded with other godly people to provide the alternative voice to what the culture is going to say is the right way to live. This is important, and I said that to him because I loved him. And I loved his family. And he was offended. And I never saw him again. My hope is they went somewhere where there were no impediments to what was holding them back from full devotion. My hope is they found a place where they could dig in and be that committed family together. David initiates servanthood. He initiates worship. And he initiated generosity. David was so kind. Thank you for using that passage. That was in my sermon. That makes it shorter for you folks. That very passage when David is called upon to build an altar to worship on somebody else's land. Now he's king. He's king. He could take the land. And the landowner hears that David's there and he knows the king could take the land so it's in his best interest to go offer that. He says, King David, I am so honored that you're here. Please let me give you this piece of land. Let me give you the oxen. Let me give you the yoke to do the burned offering. And David says, no, because what I offer to God has to be my best, not your best. It has to be my best. And I will not give unto God that which costs me nothing. That which costs me nothing is not an offering. It is an insult. There came a time when David felt it was time to build the temple. A house worthy of the Holy One. A house worthy, worthy of God's greatness and all for the people. And though Solomon would be the one who actually built it, David says, I want to resource this. This is not going to be just something out of the national treasury. I have a personal treasury. I'm going to open up my personal treasury. I have gold. I have silver. I have other resources. I'm going to make them fully available that this house may come to be. And the people were so, so struck, so inspired that they began to give liberally and generously and a great rejoicing, a great time of worship occurred because the spirit of generosity was ignited among all of them. David Ramsey, Dave Ramsey, who is um, a wonderful teacher about the biblical principles of generosity, tells a story about what he learned from a Jewish rabbi. It seems that as the Sabbath service is closing and before the week, uh, the week of work begins, there is a service called Havdalah. And Havdalah means separation. It is the time in between. And as a part of that, a cup is placed and a pitcher of wine is brought. 
the wine flows into the cup, symbolizing that person's intent and the family's intent to earn, to produce enough to meet the family's needs. That's vitally important. In 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 8, it says, The one that does not provide for their family is worse than an infidel. We're called to provide for the needs of our family. But then, the wine keeps flowing. And it flows to the top and begins to overflow. And that which is overflowing is the abundance that is to be used to become a blessing to others God has given us to love. Now I want you to notice two things. It's a cup. It's not a thimble and it's not a bucket. You and I get to choose how big a cup meets our family's needs. Not all their wants, but their needs. And then we are called by our industry to earn, to produce enough to fill that cup for the needs of our family and to produce enough to overflow, to overflow that we might become a blessing to all of those God has given us to love. Friends, that's what a wholehearted life looks like. The blessing is in the overflow. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen? Amen. Amen. Amen.